Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Smart and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continuing trek around the history of Major League Baseball. as told by the men who played the game, many at a Hall of Fame level, and others who were in the middle of some of the greatest games and moments of all time. This is a podcast 20 years in the making. Hopefully you listened to last week's conversation with Marvin Miller, the first executive director of the MLB Players Association, and the first guest what was then a terrestrial radio show here in Atlanta called Hardball. A perfect guess as we navigate our thoughts on the current state of the game, the owners versus players fight that unfortunately has reared its ugly head and has left us, the fans, wondering what the hell are you doing to our game? If this is your first time in, if this week's guest is, was the reason you are here today, welcome and thanks for finding us. I hope what you hear today will send you to look at the list of previous conversations and start your listening path to some, if not all of the others. If you've become a regular here, thanks for that. You know by now that these are firsthand accounts, me tracking down and finding men who have been willing to pick up a phone and tell their stories, the wins, the losses, things that go way beyond the numbers that they've accumulated. As a matter of fact, this podcast is the farthest thing from a number-driven career breakdown. These are time spent tapping into the greatest human resource we have, our ability to communicate. The goal, to create an atmosphere that stirs the memory pot and offers access to a clubhouse in Brooklyn in 1955, or a front row seat for the Mantle Maris home run chase of 1961. Fisk's game six home run? Let Carlton tell the story. What's it like to catch a couple of Sandy Koufax no-hitters? Welcome in Johnny Roseboro. The streak? Here's Cal to tell you about that and more. I'm hoping that no matter the guest, the baseball fan of you knows that each episode will bring you something you didn't know, but more importantly, an insight and honesty that hopefully can create a visual to go along with the spoken word format of a podcast. Think about this. I believe we are 22 episodes in, 16 Hall of Famers, and I don't believe one of our guests has spent more than six seconds talking about the numbers that got them into Cooperstown. So as I tee up episode 23, Hall of Famer 17, and another one uniform Hall of Famer at that, it's time for a hard truth. The people we root for, the ones we point at, applaud, and invest in financially, emotionally, and in this sport more than any other, spiritually, at times will let us down. Their faults when laid out for the world to see are difficult to comprehend. Today's guest is an example of that and taught me a lesson that I understand now better than ever. Kirby Puckett did things with a bat that not many before or since have been able to do. He had a 10-year stretch where he had more hits than anyone in the game. His 1,940 were 100 better than Tony Gwynn's. His 162-game hit total average over his 12 years and shortened career is an amazing 209 per season. A lifetime 318 average. 
seven top 10 MVP finishes, six gold gloves, and I'm not sure anyone pulled back more home runs than Kirby. And, of course, in his only two postseason seasons, two World Series titles, five home runs, sorry, Braves fans, and an ALCS MVP on his resume. A career cut short by a Dennis Martinez fastball, a pitch that Kirby flat out said was a my bad moment, as he did something he never did. He guessed, here comes the curve, and he was wrong. We will talk about that last career at bat and how the following season it all ended in spring training. And here's what you need to know. This conversation took place not much after his induction into the Hall of Fame, before the stories of off-the-field problems had arisen, and I learned a lesson that I hold on to to this day. It's why, in part, I am including this conversation in this series. I needed to own up to falling into that trap myself. I actually keep it simple. I call it the Kirby rule. I don't edit these conversations, and you will hear me at the end of this one praise Kirby effusively about how he carried himself and how being a one-uniform guy when he could have gone and was close to moving on in free agency was not what he wanted. While I don't know anything close to the whole truth, I do know this. We don't know these guys. We cheer for them. We ride the emotional waves of wins and losses with them, but we don't know them. We root for what we see and hope like hell that they don't disappoint us. But that's not entirely possible in every situation. The Kirby rule is just that. What I see, what I hear, and in some cases the actual time I've spent with athletes is just a small piece of their lives. I would not get overly caught up in who I think they are, but let them lay out the stories of their lives and enjoy them as a fan. Kirby's life in baseball, story up until this point, this day in 2001, was incredible. And I've had teammates and opponents tell me he was the definition of a gamer, a big-time player waiting for a big-time moment, and he delivered. But it's sometimes not as simple as that. And that is the reason I didn't hide from my end of this conversation. Unbeknownst to me, my swing and a miss on this day. For your consideration, Kirby Puckett. He loved the game of baseball, enjoyed every day that he put on a major league uniform. When you put the uniform on, you play with pride and integrity. Just don't take it for granted because you never know. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. Puckett swings and hits a blast. Into the pitch. Gantt swings and hits one very high and deep to left center. Back is Puckett. He's at the fence. He leaps up. He caught it. Oh, what a catch. Here's the throw back to first and safe is Pendleton. Oh, Kirby Puckett. And there's hit 1,000 for Puckett. Her scores. Bush scores. Puckett has a double. And he's the fourth player in big league history to collect 1,000 hits before completing five years in the big leagues. Base into right field by Puckett will score the run, holding it second base. And that's hit number 2,000 for Kirby Puckett. And I'm proud to say that I'm a Minnesota twin. You know how some people say they bleed the Yankee pinstripes or the Dodger blue? Well, whatever you want to call this, I want one uniform in my career. And I'm proud to say that. Nice. Very happy. Honored, as a matter of fact. And I don't use that word very often. A little bit more this year with some of the people we talked to, but I'll certainly throw this gentleman into the mix. He is a Hall of Famer. He is Kirby Puckett and certainly one of the good guys around the game of baseball. Kirby, how are you today? Hey, how are you doing, Chris? Very good, sir. I appreciate good. your time today. Good. good. Kirby, have you stopped yet to think about how improbable your whole life has been at this point? Well, you, you know, I try to sit back and reflect on the things that, that I achieved and the things that I've overcome. And, and I still don't believe it. You know, I still don't believe I'm in a Hall of Fame. I mean, everything just this year was just so magical and so wonderful, you know, that and it went by so fast, you know. <laughs> I put my boat away this week, you know, and I, I couldn't believe that uh, 
you know, fall is here and the leaves are falling and it's going to get cold outside again and and you got to plan some snow and then wait for it all to melt to get back out there again. So, what, what are you still doing living in Minnesota when you know all of that stuff is coming? Well, I grew up in Chicago, so yeah. I'm used to it, man. I mean, I love the cold. I love the fall and the winter. It doesn't bother me one bit. Now, speaking of Chicago, um, how many people looked at you like you were crazy throwing a baseball against the wall for as many hours as you did? <laughs> I got in trouble a lot for that, man. I got in trouble a lot, and uh, people complained on me a lot, and I got in trouble a lot. But, I mean, there was nowhere else for me to play, so I had to play where I had to play, and I just took my punishment like a man. I just hope that we get as much game in as possible and then went on from there. And mostly when you're talking about, and you grew up, we'll talk about where it was and what people have talked about about that area and how improbable this whole story does become. But you're talking about you a ball, a chalked wall, and I guess at some point a dream, correct? Yeah, just a rubber ball and a bat and uh, and a glove, man. And, and that's it, man. That's how, that's how the dream started. I mean, I looked at TV when I was five years old. And I saw Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Ron Sand on them playing, and I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to be as a ball player. Nobody introduced the game of me. Nobody told me that I should be there. So nobody led me in the direction. It was something that I just saw on TV, and I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to be. Did you say that out loud? Did you let people know that that's what you wanted to oh, do? Oh, absolutely. The whole world knew it. I mean, at that age. I mean, I, people looked at me like I was crazy, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you got other kids saying, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever. And then, and then I say, I want to be a professional baseball player. They laughed. Anybody back then not think you were crazy when all of this was started? <laughs> well, they still think I'm crazy now too, Chris. So it doesn't <laughs> matter. I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, it was, uh, it was a great, it was a great, it was a great ride for me. I mean, you have to understand as kids, you know, we all have dreams, and 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 to be able to think of a dream that you want, something that you want to do forever, and to be able to do it, and 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 live out your dream, live in a fantasy world for like 12 years, and win a couple World Series championships, and go to All-Star Games and Gold Gloves and win all those individual awards and then win two World Series and then all of a sudden get 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 here with the ultimate honor, which is going to the Hall of Fame where one percent of the ball players that play this game will ever walk, you know, walk down that aisle. And just to think that I'm one of them was uh, it's pretty spectacular from a kid growing up in the, in the projects of Chicago, you know, a place where people called it, dubbed it a place where hope died. I mean, I think that's very, very special. What were other kids doing while you were working with that wall? Well, it was, you know, I had buddies that played. You know, I couldn't play by myself all the time, but when they weren't around, I just practiced on my throwing and practiced on my accuracy when I was a kid. That's a, you know, just because I had nobody play with them, I didn't play. You know, I wasn't a normal kid. That's what they tell me. When I was eight years old, I used to sit down and watch a whole baseball game. My kid is nine. He can't even sit down and watch an inning, let alone a whole game. <laughs> now, how close did you come to falling into the environmental traps that were around you? Were there moments when you could have gone another way? Well, there were lots of moments, but I mean, I'm the baby of nine, so I had I had five other brothers, I had five big brothers and, and three three big sisters that, uh, that kind of looked after me and took care of me my whole life, so I really considered myself fortunate to, you know, to get beat up a lot by them and, and for them to show me the way, you know, uh, I feel very, very fortunate none of us, uh, you know, none of us fell victim to that, you know. My brothers went on to the Army when they got older and they got to be teenagers and they took jobs and and a good law-abiding citizens never did anything wrong. So I mean, so for me, I just followed the path that, that, that they left for me. But I just took it a little bit further when I when I, when I wanted to be a baseball player. And I went to college and and was playing ball in college. Then got drafted. Then went to play minor league ball. Then ultimately made it to the big leagues and got to play twelve wonderful years in, in one uniform, which is a Minnesota Twins uniform. And I'm pretty proud of that. Let's talk about how it really all started. Who actually signed you? Ellsworth Brown. It was my first professional contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ellsworth Brown was a scout for the Twins, and I think he still is. He lives somewhere in uh, in Illinois somewhere, and uh, he is the man that uh, that made it all work. Now, you were actually drafted before you went to a junior college, and then yes. you played in the Twins. I was drafted jun- out of Bradley University. Mm-hmm. In the first round, I was the third pick, and the Twins offered me $4,000. And I told Ellsworth Brown then, I said, Mr. Brown, I said, no disrespect, sir. I said, but I can go shovel people snow and hustle pop bottles and uh 
and make $4,000 over, over a couple month period of time. I said, I think it's kind of a, a slap in the face. And so he went, they went from four to 6,000. And I told him, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and play junior college ball. And then I'll go into June draft. So, well, the twins were nervous as hell. I go to junior college, I'm player of the year. We go to the junior college world series. I Uh-oh. mean, price tag's I mean, going we, up. On, we do everything. Price tag's going up. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking, but I, I was, it wasn't for that. I just wanted to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, now looking back, if I'd have thought about it, I probably would have went in the June draft to see how much money I could get. But, I didn't want to play for that reason. I wanted to play because I love the game of baseball. Kirby, growing up in Chicago, how many games do you actually play in high school? Uh, not a lot. We don't get to play like the kids in California. You know, it's freezing outside. We get to play, uh, I bet you we played about 20 games maybe. Were you heavily recruited at all, or did people uh, know who you were? Really. You know, when I graduated out of high school, I had one scholarship offer, and that was to Miami-Dade North Community College, and let alone going to Miami. My parents couldn't afford to send me across the street, mm-hmm. let alone send me out to Miami to play baseball. You know, that was that was, that was was a, a no-brainer. Even though I wish I could have went, I knew that I, that would have been too far. My parents wouldn't have been able to afford that. So I, uh, I, I rejected it, and after I graduated out of high school, I took a year off, and I worked at Ford Motor Company on assembly line and, and put my time in and saved up my money, and I went to a Kansas City Royals trial camp, and and Dewey Kelmer, the coach of Bradley, head coach at Bradley University, saw me play and said, he checked my grades. I graduated with a B average. Good student. He can get good ACT and and SAT scores. And uh, he said, well, I, I'm, on, I'm prepared to give you a full ride scholarship to Bradley University right now. And I, I kind of started stammering and stuttering. And I was like, well, are you serious? And I thought he was kidding. Mm-hmm. He said, here's my card. He said, you go home. You talk to your mom and dad about it. You call me tonight. I'm at the hotel. And I remember my buddy drove me home, and I told Mom and Dad, I said, Mom and Dad, guess what? I said, this guy offered me a full-ride scholarship. He told me to tell you to call him. And my mother called him, and he said, sure enough, he offered me a full-ride scholarship. So all I got to do is just show up, and you take everything else. That year that you spent working at the Ford plant, uh, you had a goal in mind. You had a plan in mind. Again, any any point where that whole thing maybe didn't work out the way it eventually did? No, not really. You know, after high school, you know, after, after that long haul, I mean, some some kids, it's easy to graduate from high school. It was, it was a grind for me, going to public school, I mean, the whole deal, you know, playing baseball and having to keep your grades up and, 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 and just having to study so much. And my mom my mom and dad were really, really big on uh on doing schoolwork. You know, so like like my kids, they get to come home after school and they get to go out and play and they get to do their homework a couple hours later. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid it wasn't like that. You know, when I came home from school, I get out of school at three fifteen, I'm home at three thirty. At three thirty, I might have a chance to get some Kool Aid or something, a little something to little, little something to bite on for a little bit. But now I gotta sit my behind down and my mom gonna sit there, she'll go through my homework with me. And she's going to check it when I'm done to make sure that it's right. And if it's not right, I'm going to sit there until I do it right. Did you get it back then, what they were trying to instill in you? Well, no doubt about it. I mean, I didn't get mad. I mean, I figured, you know what, in order for me to go play, it was the best thing in the world for me because my friends, when I went outside, that's all they were saying was that they had to go in because they had to go eat and shower and do their homework. Well, I was already done. So it becomes you and the wall, though, when well, uh, when everybody has to go inside. Well, yeah, and I, and I, said, I tell my kids, that. I said, when you guys go to school, I'll make you guys. They said, uh-uh. They don't want nothing to do with that, so... But but for me it was the best solution for me and I think I, I, as a result, I mean I was very very I was very very prepared for college. It actually helped me prepare for college. It actually did. I mean just those things. I mean I was doing it by myself. I just knew I had to do it. If I didn't do it right, I didn't get to go play. Now Kirby, you go from the inner city of Chicago to the Appalachian League. I mean you mm-hmm. you got to be talking about a culture shock of some uh, sort. Yeah, yes sir. Yes, yeah, so it was like I got sent to CJ Clamp and Nellie May. It, it was really something. It was really. Uh, I mean you talking about a culture shock. I grew up in the big city of Chicago and. Signed with the Twins, and they sent me to Elizabeth in Tennessee. And I'm telling you what, man, you've never seen a guy be in the house so much. I mean, there was really nothing to do. I had nothing in common. My roommates, one was from Georgia, one, and then two were from Florida. Mm-hmm. 
So I mean, you know, I, they were from the kind of the South part of, you know, of the nation. But me, I'm from Chicago, and I know nothing about all this. I just went to the ballpark and just played. Now, you know, you didn't have a lot of games. You talk about 20 games in Chicago in high school, and and you really didn't play all that long. You didn't have a lot of games under your belt. Did you understand the game when you went oh. to the Appalachian League? Did oh, you? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I understood it so good that I, I, I even knew when I got there that I shouldn't have been there. I mean, the Twins left me down there to die. I mean, I ended up, I was hitting 400 all year long. And then the Appalachian League, you only play like 70 games, right. 75 games or something like that. And uh, and I, I was flirting with 400, but I got tired to a little tired towards the end. Uh, like you said, I ended up in 388. And you looked around. I mean, you knew that. All right. Well, everybody, they, they were moving everybody else up. Right. And they were leaving my, my behind down. And I was like, man, what did I do? Because these guys they were bringing up weren't better than me. Now, do you have the chance to ask anybody that type of question, or do you just keep quiet and keep playing? No, you just keep playing. Yeah. You know that something's good is going to happen. And, and as a result, it did. I went to spring training that, 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 that after that year, and I played so good in spring training, and they rewarded me for my year. And I got to skip low A ball, which was like in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It was freezing, <laughs> and I got to go to Visalia, which was high ball. So I got to play in a beautiful California setting mm-hmm. where it's nice every night. You know, you, you couldn't beat it. And then, and then the next year, I skipped double A in spring training, and I go straight to triple A, and I'm a Toledo month here for a month. And before you know it, I'm getting called to the big leagues in 1984. So I played less than two years in the minor leagues. So you knew what you were doing. And what was the book on you? Uh, well, well, back then, I was a different ball player than I ended up being. I mean, I was a fast kid. I could play outfield. had a good, accurate arm. Uh, great bunner, uh, still bases. I mean, I could do all the little things to, make, to help you win a ball game. Where'd you hit in the order? Home run hit or anything like that. Where did you hit in the order? Would that make you a two guy or? Well, no. When, when, I, when Elizabeth and I was number one mm-hmm. in California, I went to number three. Okay. <laughs> um, and then in AAA, I was a number one or two. And then uh, when I got to the big leagues here, I was a number one. Yes, you were. And and, and, I, and then I ended up being number two, one and two the second year, and then the third year. Uh, Ray Miller called me in his office and said, I'm his number three. And I started laughing. I said, Ray, I'm not number three hitter. You got Ken Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, Tom Rudansky. I'm not a number three hitter. And he says, well, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm the manager here. And I said, you're my number three hitter. And you do something amazing. You go from you, – you didn't hit a home run your first year in the majors, correct? Right. I, I went from zero home runs to four home runs to 31 home runs for Ray Miller. I mean, that's got to be, percentage-wise, as big a jump as really anybody's seen in the major it, league. It was unbelievable because I, I didn't know what to do. And I told Tony Lee, I said, I can't hit third with this swing. And we went to spring training a couple weeks beforehand. And Tony worked with me. And we devised this leg kick that you saw me use mm-hmm. throughout my career from 1986 on. And I started using that, and when, when it's used right, and when it's done to perfection, the ball just flies. And that year, people were saying, check the ball, you know, steroids, whatever. They were yelling all these things. I was like, well, check whatever you want, man. I said, I'm not doing anything. It's just I'm staying back on the ball, and I'm driving the ball now. That's the only thing that I'm doing. Now, you had to trust, Tony, because you hit well enough where if they tell you they're going to they're gonna mess with you, they're going to change your swing around, you really have to trust that he knows what he's doing at that point if you're going to buy into the whole thing. Well, it's not only that. You know, the thing, the thing that Tony Oliva taught me was that um, – you know, he's going to give me ideas, and I have to make the ultimate decision. He didn't say, do this, right. and this is what you do. He said, we're going to try a whole bunch of do- different things, and if one of these things are nice or you feel comfortable with it, then that's what you do. And and, and we did several, believe me, several different stances. I mean, I tried like eight or nine different stances, and once we did a leg kick, I said, this is what I like. And comfortable but, enough to actually? It was very comfortable. I mean, I had to get used to it. And once I went to spring training, once I got to spring training, everybody else got to spring training. And I was using that method. It was unbelievable. People were going crazy. <laughs> and, Kirby, there, there's a lot of hits and a World Series in 87 before that game, 6 and 91. But being here in Atlanta, i got to ask a couple of questions. Yes, sir. That day, you know, I've heard the stories, and people talk about urban legend and what was said and what wasn't said. You knew that day was going to be different, did you not? Well, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I was, I've always been the kind of person, Chris, I've never been afraid to fail. 
And still to this day, I'm not afraid to fail because if you haven't failed, you haven't lived. I mean, that, that's what my mom and dad used to tell us all the time. If you haven't failed, you really haven't lived life uh, at all. And, and, then, uh, and I failed a lot. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I wasn't to the point where I, uh, you know, was crying or anything like that. I wasn't afraid. I mean, the one thing about baseball you have to understand is that there's no middle. Either you're going to be the goat or you're going right. to be the hero. And I always took that challenge personal. And you're but, down you're down 3-2 in that series, and, right? and you we went into that. Kicked, we got our butts kicked down in the right. south, yeah. But they were pretty good games. We never really got blown out or anything like that. They were pretty good games. And, and uh, you know, we, we we played there, and we played good games. Atlanta was just better than us in Atlanta. And uh, well, I remember we came home, and all of a sudden I got in the clubhouse, and, and our clubhouse was quiet. And anybody knows me that knows when I used to play the game that there's no such thing as a quiet clubhouse. And you're there. And you're, back and all, all yeah. of us, that was our clubhouse. We're going we to be loud and boisterous, and we're going to tell people how we feel. And you're there early enough to ensure that that atmosphere. First right. got the ballpark and the last one to leave always. And that atmosphere is going to be what you needed it to be in that game six. And, we, and I went out to hit early because my swing, you know, I didn't really have much in Atlanta. They were striking me out, and I, I hit a home run off Avery, a line drive. That's all I really did in the whole series mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And I said, you know, I got to get my swing. If we're going to win, man, my swing has got to get a lot better than this, you know. What did you tell the team that day in the locker room before that game? Well, I hit extra BP. That's what I was telling you. I hit extra batting practice before regular batting practice, and I noticed that the ball was really jumping off my bat. You know, I was like, oh, okay, here, my, here we go. I got it now. And my timing and everything was just back doing that extra batting practice. Then doing regular batting practice, I hit, and I was calling and telling everybody what I was going to do with the pitch before the guy even threw it. <laughs> I said, just tell me what you want to see. You want to see a home run in the center field? Boom, I hit it in the center field. You want to see a home run in the right field? There you go. You want to hit a home run in the left field? There you go. I was, I was pretty much doing what I was saying I was going to do. And I was like, today is going to be a special day. Now, any- and so I go in the clubhouse, and, and again, our clubhouse is quiet. No music's playing. It's like a morgue in there. And I remember I told everybody, I said, TK, everybody, I said, call a meeting right there. I said, everybody huddle up for a second. And everybody huddled up, and I said, guys, I said, look here. I said, I just want to get one thing to say to you guys today. I said, you guys can jump on my back today. I'm curious. I'm going to take care of us today. And everybody went, yeah, yeah. Everybody got all excited, you know. And I said that other times and didn't do nothing. You know? right. But for the most part, usually when I said that, I, I usually bagged it up. In other words, you had pulled it out only when you needed to pull it out, so you weren't no, crying. I'm, I'm going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I knew I needed to do something mm-hmm. because they looked for, for myself and Herbeck and us to lead. I had to do something to kind of take to ease their minds, to take their minds off of the game itself. And then that, once, I, once Puck said he was going to take care of it, they were like, oh, man, we all right now. You know, Kirby's going to take care of it. We all right. You know, and the music came on, and, and all of a sudden it was loud again. And I was like, this is the way the clubhouse is supposed to be. I said, look, if we don't win today, there's no tomorrow. Right. So we don't have a choice. Now, the thing that really is amazing, anybody who's played this game from the age of seven and on has had the dream of, in the big moment, in the big spotlight, I am actually going to do something with the whole world watching. I, I mean, did you almost feel so good enough that night that you were ready to call that shot in the 11th inning? Uh, no, because actually I was going to bot. I mean, I'm sure you heard the story. I mean, yeah, with Chile. Chile. You, pitch, you're talking to Chile Davis before that? I told that? Chile, I said, Chile, I said, Charlie's a good fielder. I said, but if I get this bundle down where I want to, there's no way you can throw me out. I said, why don't I get on and you hit a ball in the gap and then we go home? And Chili said, Puck, he said, this is your town, man. This is your moment. He said, this is your team. He said, you lead us. He said, you get one of them change-ups, hit the damn ball out, let's go home. I, I kind of changed the explicit tails. I kind of substituted there for Chili. But it's a 2-1 he pitch. He said, bump my belief, get a good pitch, hit the damn thing out, let's go home. <laughs> and that's exactly what he said. And I said, okay. I said, but I'm going to take a few pitches before. Which you don't do a lot. And if, and if anybody knows Curry Puckett knows that I don't take pitches. I'm no. swinging my sleep when I'm at home. You, I you, swing all the time. You're the Yogi Berra of your generation, yes, by the way. But, but I took the first pitch. I took the second pitch. It was 2-0. and I even took the third pitch. Umpire called a strike. It was 2-1. and So now everybody knowing the world knows. I mean, everybody got to know. I'm not taking no more. That's too many already. 
And I said, okay, if you throw me out here, I'm looking for a change I'm going to try to stay back right here and drive it out of here if I care. How many and, times in your career you think you thought home run? Well, I mean, a lot, a lot of times in my career, I come up with the game on the line. Like, you see somebody warming up down the bullpen, and I'd say, they just warming that guy up for me. And I said, I'll tell you right now, if they bring that guy, a young guy, they just come up, and I'm, you know, I'm very impressionable on these kids, you know. They listen, they're they, they holding on to every word that I say. And I said, look, if they bring that guy on there to pitch to me, I said, the game is over. We're going to go home. And sure enough, they bring that guy in, I get a hit, and they, and they be looking like, wow, you know. <laughs> and I said, I told you. I said, that guy can't get me out, man. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I, it's just a, it's a mind game. And you knew it. I mean, that is half the oh, battle, no, if I, not I more. Knew it. I, I, yeah. I didn't also do that on Charlie. I knew that I just wanted to just get a pitch to hit and try to stay back. First of all, it was a changeup. Try to stay back. Try to stay back and drive the ball and, 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 and just take my chances. And he, threw, he hung a changeup a little bit, and he got it up, and I hit it. And I didn't know what was out. You saw me running. I was running mm -hmm. hard because I thought I was going to hit off the plexiglass and take one of crazy house. And I also tried to get a double. I knew I had at least a double. Maybe try to stretch a triple if I could. And when you got 60,000 people in there screaming and all that, mm -hmm. it gets hot in a minute in, in the dome. And the ball kept carrying, kept carrying, kept carrying. And in the words of Jack Buck, he said, we'll see you tomorrow night. One six, of the great Six rolls up. One of the great calls of all time, Absolutely. by the way. Now, Kirby, a couple of quick things, and I do appreciate your time. When, when did you know that something was wrong with the eye? Uh, actually, nothing was ever wrong with me, Chris. I mean, I, you talk to a guy who, who, who's proud to say throughout his twelve-year career, you know, twelve years isn't that long by some people's standards. But for me, I was never—I was always proud to tell people all the time I was never on the disabled list. I was never hurt. I was never one of those guys that got hurt all the time. I mean, I played in pain. Don't get me wrong. Every athlete—if you're an athlete at all—you have to play in pain. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was hurt a lot, but I played through it. And that's, that's what they teach you to do. You know, that's what you have to do if you want to be successful. Every time you don't feel good, you can't say, I don't feel good, and then just play when you want to, when you feel good. But I was, I was always proud to say I was never on a disabled list until my eye situation. Unfortunately, glaucoma doesn't have any warning signs at all, and I came to the ballpark that one day, and I was leaving out the door, and I, when I was sleeping, and I woke up, and I couldn't see my wife's face. But I could see her hair and her shoulders. I said, I must slip on my eye roll. Something's wrong. And by the time I took my rental car to the place, and by the time I got to the park, it was like a, it was it was partly cloudy. It was cloud, real cloudy. And by the time I got to the doctor, my vision was completely gone. Now, did you get two hits off of Maddox in your last? Yes, I got I got three hits off of Maddox. Three yes. hits. Yes. And this is when something you knew something was going on. I didn't know anything. I like I said, I woke up that morning, man. It was getaway day. We go to Colorado to play two exhibition games and. Beautiful Colorado. They just opened up their stadium, and I was excited about going there. See, so the ball flies in Colorado, you know? So, Kirby, you're, hold it. You're telling me, though, I had thought that there were some things lingering before that. You no, mean nothing, you, you get three hits, wrong. you wake up the next day, and then— I was in 360 and then spring training, man. There was nothing wrong with me. I was fine because the year before, I got hit in the face. You know? right. Everybody had doubts about—was worried about was I going to be scared of the ball or shy or the ball or whatever. And I came out with a vengeance, man. I, had, I wasn't afraid. I mean, I got hit in the face for the first time in my whole life. So I wasn't afraid of the ball or anything. I was just one freak accident. I just got hit. Now you wake up the next day and, and you're realizing, well, okay, this isn't good. Did you think it was just something that was going to go away as the day went on? Well, I, I didn't really know. You know, I, I, I never had anything wrong with me, and I right. knew that I knew that I couldn't see. And that's when I told the doctor. I said, Doc. I said, the trainer. I said, Dick. I said, tell Doc. Uh, you know, call the doctors. I can't see out my eye. And he called a doc, and we went over to the eye, work, eye place, and we sat there, and they did all kinds of tests, took blood, and did this and did this, and. You know, and I was like, okay, well, I'm fine now, you know, and and uh, we just sat there, and they did every, all, the, that's the most frustrating part, that was the most frustrating three months of my life, that when I had to just sit there, and I had to come to the ballpark, I had to take BP, mm -hmm. and shag, and take infield, and that was my game, you know, here, all of a sudden, I'd be ready for 
you know, for, you know, for, you know, I'm getting ready for the game. Now, well, there, well, there's no game. Did, did you know, obviously you know it's not good. When did you know it was bad? Well, I, they, they, didn't, they couldn't find anything that was wrong. I was too healthy. They never could find anything that was wrong with me. And so that was the most frustrating part because I was totally healthy. I was in the best shape of my life. I weighed 215 pounds, 225 pounds, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in great shape. I had a trainer. I was in the best shape of my life. I couldn't do no wrong. Could you have played in 96 on instinct alone and, and hit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I could have played, but I had to train my eye to kind of to kind of be what I wanted it to be because the doctor had told me that there's guys that play ball with one eye, you know? And I thought about it. You know? And I said, well, you know what? That wouldn't be the smartest thing in the world for me to do because – what if I get hit, get hit in that eye? Right. Now I'm really in trouble. Right. And I say, it's not worth it to me. You know, I say my penny's pretty good. And I did everything I was supposed to do the right way and very conservative kind of guy. And I said, you know what, I'm going to be okay. Kirby, were you a guest hitter? Uh, not at all. No. You know, but that time I get hit in the face, I did. Yeah. And that's what happens. Really? Yes, I, I mean, guess. Do you remember that moment and you just oh, said. Absolutely, I do. Knobloch was on third. I yeah. had 99 RBIs. And the infield was back. It was an 0-2 count. Dennis Martinez was pitching. And then my ties facing Dennis, when he got me 0-2 usually, he threw me that curveball. Mm -hmm. Well, the infield stayed back. All I had to do was just put the ball in play. And I got me a, I got me a, I got my 100th RBI of the year. I mean, I, I pretty much know. I'm not trying to do nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to merely just tap the ball to anybody but him. And I got an RBI. And I got out there, and I'm leaning out there looking for that curveball. And he threw a fastball, and 91 miles an hour, just riding in on me, riding in on me. And I tried to cover up, and that little space that was open, he hit me right there. I mean, I wasn't mad at Dennis. It was my fault, you know, because I shouldn't have been guessing. If I'd right. have been hitting like I usually hit, I would have ducked out of the way of that pitch, and I'll guarantee the next pitch would have been the curveball. And did it ever come back? Did did they try to associate what happened? I mean, I know it's glaucoma. A lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people do. But I talked to my doctor, and he says, you know what, that's not true. You know, there's no way you can judge that right. or, or, or say that about it. You know, it's just it was a freaky thing that happened. I mean, I've been healthy my whole career, like I said. And I've never been hurt, and I was really proud of that. So for that to happen... And that, see, if I'd have known, my problem was this, was that if I'd have known that I had a family history of glaucoma, right. I, then I could have had it been, you know, been having it checked over the years, and, and I could have known that if something was wrong, that it was deteriorating in some way or another. And they tried doing a couple of different surgeries, but they at that point everything. it was... We tried yeah. laser in the back and opened up new veins, and we did all that, man. We did all, everything that you could possibly do, and uh, nothing worked. And then I remember that day so, so clear in my head that... My agent Roger Pryor was there, my agent Michael Moss, and my wife Tanya and I, and, and Brian Woods. I mean, everybody was there. And uh, and uh, Doc came out and said, I'm sorry, Kirby, you're not going to be able to play ball again. And everybody started crying with me, and I looked up to the ceiling, and I just said, thank you, Jesus. You know, because for the first time in my life, I was living, my life was in limbo. I was riding that fence that I talked to people about. Uh, you know, if you want to be a good a good person, I believe you can't ride the fence, man. You can't be in the middle. And you needed... Everybody would like to stand in the middle and, and, and be good with both sides. But in life, you have to make a choice. And you needed that answer. You just needed to... I just wanted to know one right. way or the other, because I, I was set for life after baseball. Mm -hmm. I was ready to go on. Either way, either, one way or the other, either go back to playing ball or retire from baseball and do something else. I was ready, because three months coming to the game, watching watching other guys play, sitting there, and the guys asking me what, what they think the pitcher's going to do. And I was sitting here calling every pitch. I said, what did that guy get you on last time? He got you on the slider. I, was, I said, and I tell the guy, I said, I guarantee you then, if he gets you on the slider, next time he gets you in the situation, you go through that same pitch again. Mm -hmm. Make a note of it. So make sure you get, you know, don't make a note of it. Just think about what I'm saying. And sure enough, he go up there and he throw him a slider, strike out. And he could have looked at me and tip his hat. I said, I told you. Did you keep a journal of any kind? It was in my head. Yeah. I wasn't at the Bob Tugsbury. They had like, a, right. like 15 or 20 notebooks. I didn't have that. 
Because I, 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 you can name any picture to me, and I can flat out tell you what he tried to get me out with. And was that something you worked on, or could you always do it? No, I just knew that. Yeah. Just, just top of the head, just learning the game and, and learning the situations. First of all, learning the pitchers, learning if they're going to give you something to hit, because most pitchers in a certain situation won't give you anything to hit. You know, me, number three hitter, they were the first hitter with Herbeck be hitting behind me and guys like that, they'd rather face them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what can I do? I can't make them throw, throw to me. Kirby Puckett, as we finish up with you again, uh, how's the other eye? I mean, obviously you, you must be pretty cautious and make sure you get every test that you're supposed to be getting on the other eye. Well, no doubt about it. I'm at the eye doctor three times a year. I only mm-hmm. have to go once every four months and get a wonderful eye specialist. And I'm proud to tell you I got 2015 vision, man. So I probably get about 282, 90 one eye. But <laughs> if it ain't 300, I don't want to do it. You know, I, I don't doubt that, by the way. And I'm glad I'm, not, I'm glad I wasn't playing last night against Schilling or, or Randy Johnson. That, yeah. That's a bad. Ridiculous. Ooh-wee. That's terrible. Who, who, I mean, who, that's a bad weekend. Who, who brought it to you know, guys have told me there's two different kinds of 0 for 4s. There's the 0 for 4 where you mutter into yourself saying, geez, I should have done something. Yes. There's an 0 for 4 where you just said, well, forget about it. Why, why even bother? I mean, that's a bad deal. I mean, I wouldn't want to face the Diamondbacks in a short series. I don't think you can win. Mm-hmm. You can't win in a seven-game series either if they pitch the way they can pitch. Well, Schilling was phenomenal last night. Schilling, and I just think Schilling beat you last night. He pitched right. wonderful. And here it comes. And now Schilling was throwing 95 miles, topping out at 95 last night. Yeah. So now he's going to Randy tonight. He's going to be topping out at about 97. All 6'8 of them. Oh, uh, 6'10. Yeah, 6'10. Excuse me, I sold him short. Yeah, you don't sell him short. Yeah, six, you're right. He's a big old tall drink of water. You're right. Kirby, let's finish up with this. The Snoopy Air Force hat. Where is it? Uh, it's just still at home. It's still in my closet at home. I never wear it. Uh, it's just at home. Man. Had you pick it for $3 that... at, uh, at the United <laughs> Store or something. Had you pick it out to wear it at the parade that day? Well, I, it was real cold here. Uh-huh. And I, wanted, so I just wanted to pick up something that would cover my ears, you know? I was really looking for one of those furry-type hats, you know, that you pull down, them aviator-type hats. Right. With all that fur in them, I uh-huh. didn't have that. Uh, if so you... I said, I'm going to grab this one, and that's what I grabbed, and this is, that hat's famous because I wore it that one day. You're damn right it's famous. I, <laughs> I've, I've had people asking me, hey, you got you got to ask them about the Air Force hat because there have been some funny pictures. I'd imagine if you put that on eBay, there'd be a pretty good run at it. I'm sure, but I, no, I, don't, I'm, I'm, I bought it for $3, so I'm sure I could sell it for $6. Yeah, but you're probably right. It could be a heck of an I'm, investment. I'm going to keep it. As a matter of fact, since you mentioned I'm going to try to wear it this winter when I'm playing outside with the kids. There you go. Let's finish up with this. Kirby Puckett Knight, the introduction and the surprise that followed was yes. the best entrance I have ever seen at any event. Which one are you talking about? When they actually bring the lights down and, and where do you end up? You're sitting in the seat. Yes. I mean, that was on. Who thought of that? That was a long walk. The twins did. That was a long walk, man. Now, now you you got to kind of hide yourself. It's not like, you, you know, people aren't going to recognize you. Well, they saw me. You know, they saw me, but they were pretty quiet because it was so dark. It was right. completely dark. Now, what we're talking about is you end up in a seat where you hit the, the yes. home run in game six and 91. Yes. They bring the lights down, spotlight on, boom, there's Kirby Puckett sitting in the outfield. Right. Tremendous. Yeah, that was unbelievable. It was absolutely incredible. Now, is it Joe Reese? Joe Reese, yes. What does Joe Reese have to do with this whole story? He, he's the guy that caught the ball. And he did a pretty noble thing, did he, he not? He did a very noble thing. And, I mean, I, as soon as he I hit it, I said, oh, boy, this one cost me a lot. You know, guys, I've got to get that ball back. And Joe Reese came, you know, they brought him to the clubhouse, and he said, you know what, Kirby, all I want, I don't want anything, no jersey, no bats, no balls, no nothing. He said, all I want is for you to take a picture with my girls, for me and my family. Mm-hmm. And I took a picture with him and his family, man, and that was it. He gave me the ball. Does it let you know there's still good people out there? Yeah, there's still good people out there. Yeah. Everybody's not willing to auction off everything. You know, there's some good people. And I got it at home as a result. He gave it to me, and I got it at home sitting on a mantle. Well, Cuppy, uh, excuse me, Kirby, two things about you I will tell you. I mentioned on the air right before you went into the Hall of Fame, uh, most hits in a 10-year span, first 10 years in a major league career, than anybody in the 20th century. I blew people away with that one. Uh, yes. That That's on the field. I, I just want to tell you, Watching a Hall of Fame induction speech, fantastic. 
the way you've carried yourself, you know, the on the field is great. You, you can put numbers up and you start comparing and let people debate where do you rank, where do you not rank, who are you better than, who was a little bit better than you. But the way you've handled yourself off the field, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you carry yourself like there's more pride in that than there is in the way you played baseball. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I, you know, life goes on. You know, I did what I did on the field, and like you said, I let people, I think people like me for what I did on the field and what kind of person that I, that I was well, or yeah. that I am. And I was just going to say, you handled yourself, even in the time since you've retired, nothing, nothing but favorable things from anybody I've talked to around the baseball world. Some guys put it on, hey, the camera's on, the microphone's on, let's make sure that, hey, people perceive me to be something I'm perhaps right, not. Right. I never got that feeling, and nor has anybody I've ever spoken to in this game ever thought that about no, me. No, not really, man. With me, you know, what you see is what you get, and that's pretty much it, you know. And uh... and you had excuses, by the way. You know, when you grew up and, and you're talking about a life that, really could have gone a couple of different ways. You had reasons to the guys you turned out to be. So it, it's applause to you. It's applause to your parents, your brothers, your sisters, everybody in the family. It, it seems like everybody is taking great pride in all of that. Well, it was definitely my upbringing. There's no doubt about it. You know, I had a good mom and dad and had a great mom and dad, man, and they made sure that we had, had everything we needed mm-hmm. or they wanted us to have. And if we didn't have it, then they just said, if you can't go out and earn it, then you don't need it. Well, Kirby, we'll end on that. Listen, a fantastic speech, by the way, up in Cooperstown. Thank you so much. Uh, and I really appreciate your time today. Truly one of the legends of the game. And, and thanks very much for your time today, Kirby. Oh, no, thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Enjoy your offseason. All right, you too. Thanks, Kirby. Bye-bye. Bye. Now to present tonight's top ten list, do me a favor. Please welcome Kirby Puckett. Kirby, come on That made you tingle a little bit. <laughs> All right, uh, the category tonight of the top ten list, by the way, from the home office in Edina. <laughs> category tonight, top ten ways to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett. <laughs> top ten ways now to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett. Here we go. Number ten. Kirby Pickett. <laughs> Number nine, Creepy Pockets. <laughs> Number eight, Bernie Crumpet. Uh-huh, sure. Number seven, Turkey Bucket. Uh-huh. Number six, Buddy Hackett. <laughs> I forget what it was, though. All right. Uh, now, back to uh, top 10 ways to mispronounce Kirby Puckett. Number five. The Puckett formerly known as Kirby. Yeah. Number four. Punky Brewster. Yeah. Number three. Ken Herbeck. Yeah. There once was a man from Nantucket who curbed his own bucket. Uh, Kirby his very own bucket. Actually, Kirby And the number one way to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett 
Ingle Puck, Kirby Dink. There you go. Lou Gehrig stood in front of a packed house in Yankee Stadium. And I think I heard him say that he thought he was the luckiest man in the world to be standing here. I'm just here to tell Lou Gehrig, Iron Horse, that tonight, Kirby Puck is the luckiest man in the world. Oh, touch him all, Kirby Puckett! What a game! His second home run, six for six. Twins World Series teams faced great odds, and we beat them. Jackie Robinson faced odds and made this game truly the national game. And I faced odds when glaucoma took the bat out of my hands. But I didn't give in or feel sorry for myself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It may be cloudy in my right eye, but the sun is shining very brightly in my left eye. Kirby was, was the best thing that ever happened to me during my career. Yeah, when I came to Minnesota, I mean, to Boston, um, I used to wear the number 27 over there. So as a player, you always want to wear the same number that you wear everywhere. But here in Boston, was retired, so they asked me, they gave me the choice of pick another number, and then I went for Kirby. We're gonna win twins, we're gonna the national game because of its great and unique history. And it doesn't matter where you came from, from the projects like me in Chicago or the gated communities of Beverly Hills. And because it doesn't matter what race, creed, or national origin you are, black, white, Hispanic, Japanese, or whatever, it just matters how you play the game. And I played it with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my might. Cheer 